Let's turn in our Bibles. Let's go over to, uh, to the book of Luke. Chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. read you the story of Jesus healing this centurion servant. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 7, it says, Now, when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders to the Jews of the Jews, to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to you, I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. They found him well that he'd been sick. You guys familiar with that story? You've heard it before. You know this story pretty well. Now, this is told in two of the Gospels. So here you heard it from Dr. Luke, who gives a more historical account, and a lot of his chronology follows in order. And you also hear it from Matthew, who tells it more in a writing to convince the Jews. Jesus was fresh from his Sermon on the Mount. When you read this, and and you see where... It says um, in 7, now when he concluded all his sayings. Well, if you read what Luke is talking about just prior, all his sayings was the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount that you find really laid out well in Matthew chapter 7. And he had been outside of Capernaum on that little hill, little mountain back there, and he had finished all that sermon Greatest sermon ever given. And he comes down the hill. And he comes into town. And on the way into town, he, he heals a leper. You can read about that just prior. And then he's beset by these elders of the Jews advocating that he come with them immediately and help the centurion's servant who's near death. And they tell him all these amazing things about the centurion. Now, what was the centurion? Was he, 
what was he? This is, uh, this is where you help me. This is participation in church. He was a Roman soldier. Not just a common Roman soldier. He was an officer in the Roman army. A commander of a century. Approximately a hundred soldiers. The Bible always, always, always speaks well of Roman centurions. There's never a time ever in the Bible that they don't speak well of Roman centurions. Obviously men of character. Had a lot of discipline, a lot of self-discipline. And the ones that are in the Bible accounts are all spoken very highly of. This particular centurion was unusual. And I'm sure it captured everyone's attention around Jesus because it said the crowds followed him down the hill. Now he had just done the Sermon on the Mount. And he had amazed the people with his teaching. Because he taught as one with authority and not like the scribes. You remember that? And they're following him back into Capernaum. A lot of them. And they're watching all this go on. And so when, he, when they hear this, I'm sure it amazed some people that a Roman soldier would care anything about the Jews. He would care anything about his servant. And he would have done anything for the Jewish religion like build a synagogue, pay to have a synagogue built in the little town of Capernaum, which is what happened. So he was an unusual Roman. We, we can all agree about that. He was very different than most. Jesus starts going to him. And, and you heard the story with me. Jesus heard the plea of the centurion. Jesus responded and went to the centurion's home. But Jesus was interrupted. Before he got to the home, there was a delegation that came out from the centurion's place. And you know, you'd obviously think, well, the servant has died or something like that. But no, that wasn't what happened. So the centurion was a Gentile. Now, was it kosher for a Jew to go into a Gentile's home? Absolutely not. And apparently, the centurion knew this. And in order to spare Jesus that trouble, he sends a delegation, another delegation, and said, look, I'm not worthy for you to even come into my home. I'm not worthy. In fact, I'm not even worthy to walk out and be near you. That reminds me of Peter over in Luke chapter 5. And it's the same approximate time period. So we're here now in Luke chapter 7. If you thumb back just a little bit, maybe I can read it to you if I remember where it is. Luke chapter 5 verse 8 is the key verse. But I might read a little bit to you before that just for some perspective. Okay. So it was as the multitude pressed about him in 5.1. To hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked to put out a little from the land. So he's trying to gain a little room and avoid the press of the crowd, and that's pretty good. And he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. 
And you know how your voice carries over water? Probably some really good acoustics there. It's probably a very clever thing that he did. And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now you've heard this preached many times. They caught those fish at night. Simon had probably fished all night. He says, now let's just push on out and let's catch some fish. And you know, the first thing that Simon was thinking is, this guy's crazy. He doesn't know anything about fishing. He's a carpenter. I, but he does do it. Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. So you know he's in a bad mood. How many fishermen you know would like to catch nothing? Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. You know, you don't hear the nonverbals here. I don't know how begrudgingly that sounded. Nevertheless. I mean, you just don't know how it was said. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. And here it is in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. For I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me. For I'm a sinful man. He was so overwhelmed, Simon Peter was so overwhelmed with the sovereign power of Jesus, the first thing he thought about was his own sin. And the first thing he wanted to do, you, know, you get into this thing, it's a fight or flight response. He wanted to flee, but he was trapped in a boat in the sea with him, and he's asking him to part from me. Just, let's just, you just need to leave me alone because I am not worthy. So when the Roman, going back to our story, sent that delegation and said, I'm not worthy for you to come in my house, nor for me to even come over to you, see you, it kind of reminded me of that kind of humility, of that kind of humble spirit, and the recognition by the Roman who was probably not well-versed, maybe somewhat versed in Jewish theology, but he had heard about Jesus. And he already believed in his lordship. He already believed that he had authority and that he could do things over time and distance. He didn't have to physically be present to do the healing. Which was, that was unusual. He had that depth of perception and spiritual discernment. I think it was very unusual. So Jesus, after he was interrupted, he reacts to this statement by the centurion with amazement. And he turned around and shared this with the crowd. Undoubtedly, some of the disciples were there in the immediate crowd. The disciples, the followers, were usually a little bit of a buffer. They tried to be. They weren't always very good at it, like most things they did. But they, they were usually right there. So he had the disciples, probably some of the Jewish leaders, and everybody else that could get close. And he turned around and said, I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel. Now this is early in Jesus' ministry. You know, he had just come from being in the wilderness and being tempted. And he turns around and he goes to his hometown of Nazareth. 
and he, he reads in the, in the synagogue, and they, they throw him out. And a little after that, he named his disciples. Then he had the Sermon on the Mount. And now this. So it's really early in his three years when this happens. But now he had had 30 years of living on the planet. Plus he was Almighty God. And he knew everything. And he said, I've not seen faith like this anywhere. So that word marveled. Do you know in the New Testament, it's only used twice. Jesus marveled. That's only... It's only used twice. So the Greek word, the real word, I'm going to murder this, but it's talmadzo. Talmadzo. It means amazed, to think incredible, to arrest one's attention. It's something that will make you stop and pause and say, my goodness, that's incredible. I think this is a wonderful meditation how the creator of the universe, who is omnipotent and omnipresent and knows all things, would be amazed. I love the saying, has it ever occurred to you that nothing's ever occurred to God? There's never a day God goes, I never really thought of that like that before. That, that doesn't happen. It's part of that all-knowing thing. When things occur to us, Sometimes I look like a cow staring at a new gate. I just go, wow, that, wow, new gate. But Jesus never had that, except he had that. I, I don't think it was surprised. I don't think Jesus was surprised. I think he was amazed. What amazed him so much was the great faith of somebody who wasn't a Jew. The Jews had had the prophets, they had the scriptures, they had the law, they had the experiences, experientially, they had watched the Egyptians endure all those plagues, they had walked through a sea, there was a pillar of fire, there was a pillar of cloud, they had watched Joshua fight these battles, the sun had stood still. I mean, if you start thinking about all of the heritage of miraculous intervention by God that the Jews had in their history in their records. And he had not found faith like that in Israel. It literally was incredulous to the God of the universe. I think that's one of the most amazing statements in the Bible, is that Jesus marveled. So he marvels at this great faith. If you think about it, not only is Jesus almost speechless with the incredulity of, of that event. But if you think about Hebrews 12, therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside the sin and the weight that so easily ensnares us and run with perseverance the race that's set before us looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The author and the finisher 
of our faith. Not only is he almighty God, who existed in eternity past, and knew everything about us before he named the first star, but he was the author of the faith. He wrote the book on faith. He's the one that allowed faith to be in our hearts. In Ephesians 2, you talk about verse 8, it's by grace we're saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith, saving faith, is a gift from God. Not only is he the author of the faith, he's the one that gifted us with the faith that we needed to hold on to to be saved and take the grace. So here you got God, all wrapped up in a man. He's the God-man. He's all God, like he had never, ever been man at any point. And he's all man, like he had never been God at any time. It's the most mysterious thing. He's the God-man. He's the perfect bridge between God and man. And he's amazed and incredulous. And he's the author of faith. He's the finisher. Some of your Bibles say the perfecter of the faith. The Greek word is the captain of the faith. He's the one that guides the faith boat. He's the one that sees it through to completion like in uh, Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to... Thank you. He'll be faithful to complete it. The good work he began in you was he gave you the faith to be saved. And now that you're saved, he's going to be faithful to complete your faith. Man, I've got to get excited. And this, this author of the faith, this living God on the planet in, in a human body, stops and looks at this delegation from this Roman, this Gentile, this occupier. And he is blown completely away. Now, how cool is that? Had you ever thunk it like that before? I got excited about that. I don't know that you could tell. The only other time that Jesus declares about great faith is over in Matthew 15. There's a Syrophoenician woman, a Canaanite woman. Let's just turn over there real quick. Matthew 15, verse 21. I'll read that to you real quick. I promise. Matthew 21, verse 15. <clears throat> Don't know. 1521. I, I said it backwards, didn't I? Did y'all know that I battled dyslexia? <laughs> then Jesus went out from there. And departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from, the region, from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word. So first move, first move, he ignores her. He just ignores her. And his disciples came. And urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
Then she came. So she's right on the heels of the disciples. The disciples had run up on Jesus and were tattletaling on her. Send her away, Lord. But she's right behind them. And so she came up and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. She's worshipping him. Lord, help me. This time he answers her. He said, but he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now that's really not as bad a slam as you might think it is. The little dogs were the pets. If any of you got a little dog, you like your little dog? That's kind of what it meant here. You're still a dog, but they love you a lot. And she said, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And then Jesus answered and said to her, Oh, woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed that very hour. Only two examples of great faith that Jesus ran into. They were both Gentiles. <laughs> help me, help me. Lord, they were both Gentiles. There was a Roman centurion and a Syrophoenician woman, a Canaanite. Now, you know, God told Joshua to kill them all. Let God sort them out. The, the Canaanites. But here she was. Jesus tried to ignore her. He told his disciples, I'm really not supposed to talk to her. Or I'm not supposed to help her. Then she butts in and worships him. And then all of a sudden, doggone, he saw the great faith. Jesus is a sucker for great faith. Don't write it like that. But he loves great faith. You want to get the Lord's attention? Great faith. Great faith. Now he didn't marvel. He didn't say he marveled. But boy, I think he probably did marvel. He just didn't say it. Sure sounded like it. What do you think, Billy? The other thing he did is he healed both of those people at a distance. He healed her demoniac daughter at a distance. And he healed the centurion servant at a distance. Which is consistent with the people that are near and those that are far away. Which were the Gentiles. You guys remember that? He came for those that are near and for those that are far away. And so here he is healing these Gentiles far away. I think that's pretty cool how he did that. I don't know if he planned that or not, but I sure was impressed by it. Okay, I'm going to move on. The great faith really gets Jesus' attention. Let's read about another account of Jesus marveling. Turn with me to Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. This is the other time it's written down in Mark, in chapter 6. I'll try to get it right this time. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 6. Uh, then he went out from there. And he came to his own country. That would be Nazareth. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in their synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. 
But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. And he could, not, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Verse 6 says, And he marveled because of their unbelief. Not only did Jesus marvel at the belief of a Gentile, Roman centurion, he marveled. <laughs> wow. He marveled at the unbelief of the folks in his hometown of Nazareth, which had watched him grow up. The only two times in the Bible that Jesus marveled. Was it great faith and it unbelief? Now, this is not the first time he has been in Nazareth. I told you that Dr. Luke has another account. And if you looked in, in Luke 4, let's move to Luke 4. I'm so sorry I'm making y'all use your Bibles. I hope it doesn't tear anybody's Bible up. But, but let's go to Luke 4. <laughs> okay, Dave, let's see. In Luke chapter 4, there is an account of Jesus going there right after he comes out of the wilderness. All right, so I'm going to start in 14. Let's start in 14. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Okay, so the Holy Spirit's still driving him. He'd just been in the desert. He'd just been in the wilderness. He don't even have any disciples yet, officially. And news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues all over the place in that region. Being glorified by all, everybody was very happy with his teaching and, and glorified him. Verse 16 says, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, to reco and recovery of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And he stopped reading there. But if you ever go look at that passage, the very next words say, in the day of judgment of our God. But he didn't read that. Because every jot and tittle means something. And he stopped right there. But in that scripture, in Isaiah, he said that's been fulfilled in your hearing. And he was proclaiming the start of his earthly ministry. His proclamation. He didn't say in that day is the day of judgment of our God. Now he'll read that later. He closed the book. And gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And if you read on, I'm going to fast forward. He talks to them about a bunch of things that are wrong. And he indicts them about their faith. And so all those in verse 28 said, So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. Sort of like what happened with Stephen... When he got stoned to death. Don't remind the Jews of their shortcomings. Memo to file. You might want to put something in the margin. Do not 
disparage the Jews. They were filled with wrath. They rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they had led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. This is his first trip to Nazareth. Nazareth, hometown. And passing through in the midst of them, he went his way. Some miraculous way he escaped that. But that's his first trip home. So second trip home, it's going a lot better. Guys, this is going so much better than the last time they're not trying to throw me off the cliff yet. I mean, I'm really excited. But they didn't believe him. They didn't believe him. Why didn't they believe him? Because they thought they, that they knew him. They thought they knew him. Their version of him was he was the carpenter's son. His brothers and sisters are still here. He's the son of Mary, which was an insult. The Jews always told you by your daddy. When they called him his mama's son, they were telling everybody he's a bastard. He's illegitimate. We don't really know who his daddy is. That's what they were calling him, the son of Mary. That was not an attractive thing to say. So that's his first trip home. Second trip home, they don't understand. Now they had heard of the mighty works because this is a, this is a year later. Between chapter four of Luke and chapter six account of Mark, there's about a year span of time, and he had been everywhere doing all kinds of amazing things in the early part of his ministry. Crowds were following him everywhere. So when he came down off of the hill at Capernaum. And he, and he did that for the centurion. That was still relatively early. But now he circles back. And Mark gives the account. A year later, he's back in Nazareth. And he's talking to these people. And he wanted to do some great works there. But he couldn't do it. And he marveled at the unbelief. I'm going to finish up in a minute. He marveled at the unbelief. And he wanted to help them. But he couldn't help them. So on that day, they're going to come to him and say, Lord, Lord, did I not do this and that for you? And he's going to say, depart from me. Because I never knew you. And he's not going to be able to help them. Because of their unbelief. That's right. They could not... It says here they were offended. I wanted to get this point in. That literally means they stumbled over him. In the Greek, that word offended or took offense, he was a stumbling block. The, the English word that we have today that's similar to this root is scandalize. He was scandalous. And they stumbled over him. So... He was a stumbling block, just like in Isaiah 8, verse 14. He was a stumbling block and a stone of offense. Now you've got two accounts of how God marvels. Why is Jesus marveling over you? Why would he marvel over me? Are you amazing him with your great faith? 
Are you making him full of incredulity with your lack of belief? There's a lot of room in the middle between great faith and no belief. There's a lot of room. I'll tell you what he said there as we close up. In Mark 4, in Mark 4, before Mark 6, Mark 4, Mark tells the account of Jesus laying down in the boat and he goes to sleep. He's so tired. And they wake him up because they're terrified. They think they're getting ready to drown out in this huge storm on the sea. And he gets up. I don't know, Brad, when I get up and I'm aroused like that and just, it's kind of, I'm groggy. Me, I'm, I'm probably ill. Jesus never sinned. He probably wasn't ill. But I don't know what he said. I would have loved to have been there to see if he said, peace, be still. Or if he said, peace, be still. You just don't know how he did it. That's one of those things that the tone means a lot. It would help convey a lot. I've ordered it on videotape, but they don't have it. But the nonverbals will be important. Um, But I will tell you this. If you read after that account, it says, and the disciples were more afraid of him than they were the storm. (laughs) And and, here's Peter again in a boat, and he can't get away, and he's terrified of him. He was absolutely terrified of him. Because the storm was terrifying, and this guy stops it with about three words. And he probably wants to go back to sleep. I don't know. But he scared them to death. Read it. He scared them to death. They said they were more afraid of him than the storm. But in the middle of his rebuke, he said, Have you no faith? That's what he said. Have you no faith? So it it really kind of aggravates him that his followers had no faith. So not only is there no belief, there's no faith. If you move on out just a little bit, in Mark 14, 10 chapters later, there's another storm. They're all rowing. Here comes Jesus walking on the water. Scares them to death again. They think he's some kind of spirit or ghost. They're all terrified. These guys were were really scared a lot, you know? And so he scares them to death. He's out on the water. They finally figure out it's him. Peter said, can I come to you? He gets down out of the boat. This wasn't like... Just getting out of a dinghy. Boat was four, five, or six feet above the water. He had to kind of hang on and drop that little thing where he dropped. That would have been cool. I would have liked to have seen how puckered up he was on that. I probably shouldn't have said that. But anyway, he lands on the water. And it's not like the pictures, it's not little ripples. They're in the storm. There's breakers coming over him. It looks worse than Myrtle Beach. And Jesus is walking through this stuff too. And he gets out there and he gets close and it must have been a big couple of breakers or something or it was really slippery. I don't know. He loses it and he starts watching the storm. He quits watching the Lord. You know the story. And he starts to sing, Help me, Lord. Lord picks him up. And he says, Oh, you of... So there's no faith. Little faith. There's great faith. But at the end, when they were starting to get it, the disciples were saying, Lord, teach us to pray. They didn't say teach us how to pray. 
They said, teach us to pray. And they also was over in Luke, let's see, 17. Lord, increase our faith. So maybe we could pray that. Maybe we could pray, Lord, increase our faith. Jesus, in response to that request, tells them the parable about the mustard seed. And what do we know about it? It's the small little seed, right? But if you have the seed of a grain of mustard, you can speak to this mountain saying, be moved. And what happens? So Jesus is not telling them that you have to have great faith. Although he likes it. How much faith does it take to get on a big cruise ship? Now, I read about a guy the other day who's swimming across the Pacific. But I've also read about these people that get in these boats, these little sailboats. And they go across the Pacific. That would take great faith. But the Queen Mary too. If it were docked in San Diego. And you could sashay on there. That doesn't take a lot of faith. And it's the same with God. God is a big boat. It don't take a lot of faith to get on a big boat. You have mustard seed faith. It's not the amount of faith. Because it ain't the amount of faith that does the work. It's the mighty God who does the work. It's just having enough faith to get on a big boat and wrap yourself up in a mighty God. It's the quality of the faith that matters. But the disciples got it finally. And they started praying about help us have more faith. So I think tonight, as we close up, let's pray for more faith. Let's pray that He would help us with our faith. So that we would have the faith that would bless God. Because he really is blessed when he sees great faith. And we love him and we want to bless him. So let's pray for that now. Dear Lord Jesus, I am so thankful for the record and the accounts that you left us in your word. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for anointing that and enlightening us and illuminating our mind to the hearing of the word tonight. Because I'm satisfied, Lord, your word does not return void. It, intent, it does what it's intended to do. Lord, would you increase our faith as you take us through the valleys, as you give us mountaintop days to reflect on your goodness. Would you work in our hearts, Lord, so that we're not these people with no faith or little faith, that we're not people with a heart of unbelief because we think we know you and we know you wrong. Would you please, dear Jesus, in your mercy, increase our faith. Let your light shine in us so that others can see it and glorify you. In your name we pray, amen.